You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. The weather is really warming up here in New York. It won't be long before we're all reaching for those summer sundresses. I personally cannot wait. And speaking of dresses, we have heard from quite a few of our listeners lately that you will specifically be reaching for white dresses over the next few months, one white dress in particular. So we decided it was time to do a wedding show. First of all, if you are a bride-to-be, a big congratulations from all of us at Her Money. We are so excited for you. And second, if a wedding is not in your future, we promise this show is for you too, whether you are a mother of the bride, a groom, a bridesmaid, or even a wedding guest. We have got you covered because the truth is that we are all so much more likely to see those wedding invitations rolling in over the course of the next year due to the number of ceremonies that were postponed thanks to the pandemic. According to data from The Knot, nearly half of couples with weddings originally scheduled for 2020 postponed at least part of their celebration until this year. And a third of those couples who actually did tie the knot in 2020 are planning some sort of a sequel celebration for 2021 or 22. And countless other couples 
downsized their weddings, with about 40% hosting what they're calling mini-monies, small ceremonies with up to 10 family members or close friends. And it's not just the size of the gatherings that have changed. More couples are getting married closer to home. 40% are saying, I do, in their hometowns. That's up more than 15% since 2019. Also, more couples are choosing to get married outdoors or in the private homes of family or close friends. It is clear that a lot about weddings has changed over just the past few months, right down to the dresses. And that is the perfect cue to introduce you to our guests today. Grace Lee and Monica Ashour are co-founders of Birdie Gray. Yes, I know you are all about Birdie Gray because Birdie Gray is an affordable online-only bridesmaid attire company. And yes, it is known for its $99 bridesmaid dresses, accessories, and gifts. People call Grace and Monica industry disruptors because they have changed the way the $3 billion bridesmaid apparel market operates. Thank goodness. Since 2017, Birdie Gray has raised over $3.5 million in seed funding, and despite a 50% decline in weddings, their company saw 80% growth in 2020. Hi, Grace. Hi, Monica. Hi, Jean. It's so nice to meet you. What an intro. (laughs) I was just having flashbacks. So our listeners know I got married twice. The first time I did the very traditional bridesmaids dress thing. I don't know how these women did not kill me, you know, for making (laughs) them walk down the aisle in these pink confections And my poor matron of honor, my first cousin, Eileen, she listens to this podcast. She was so pregnant at the time. Like she was about to pop. And I actually made her get the fabric that the other dresses were made from and have this monstrosity created that was just like a big (laughs) pink tent. She is still one of my closest, closest friends, but If I were her, I don't think I would have been talking to me for quite some time. So I am thrilled that you have disrupted the market in this way. I want to start by talking about your entrepreneurial journey. Tell me a little bit about how Birdie Gray got its start. And Grace, let me start with you. Sure. So I'm Grace. I'm the founder and CEO of Birdie Gray. I don't even know where to start. I've been a bridesmaid six times myself. Monica has been a bridesmaid seven times. Oftentimes we've been bridesmaids together in weddings because we're really old friends and we go way back. And, you know, there was just such a need for affordable bridesmaid dresses that were easy to shop for. I think the biggest challenge, you know, having been a bridesmaid so many times and under, like realizing that nothing had really changed about the shopping experience was really eye-opening. And I was just like, why are these dresses so expensive? You know, at the time in 2017, when we first started the company, the average cost of a dress was $165. And this is something, you know, you typically only wear once. And I was like, why is it that you can't get something a bit more affordable online? And so that's kind of how we got the idea to start the company. Monica, how did you join forces? Sure. After Grace had the initial idea and got the company off the ground, the concept was proven out, right? Like the market reaction was instantaneous because as you said, Jean, like the wedding industry and bridesmaids dresses just evokes this very 
visceral response. Like people have these like savage stories of like what happened to them as bridesmaids. So I could completely see the need for a dress at a reasonable price point that's like so easy to buy and like doesn't have to be all about this dramatic experience. So like I understood the need from just a personal perspective and then Grace tested the concept in market. It was a home run in the beginning. And so it was just a matter of me taking that leap of faith and quitting my corporate job and throwing my hat in the ring with Grace, which I, I, it's funny because I never considered myself an entrepreneur, not in a million years did I ever think of building a company, but it's honestly like she made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. It was just way too compelling. Yeah. You said your friends that go way back. What was it about Monica that made you think, hey, she's the one I want to work with? Yeah, that's a really good question. So just some background about me. You know, I spent most of my career in editorial. So I was a writer and a reporter for InStyle magazine. I then went to go work for a couple fashion and beauty brands like Kate Spade. I moved out to LA and worked for a couple beauty brands. And so I am very much a creative. You know, my core competency is brand storytelling. I love e-commerce. Monica is the opposite. So not only is she my best friend, but she's like a complete operator. Mon, I'll let you get into kind of your background. Background, but I think it's that complementary skill set that really works for us. Totally. Um, yeah, from like a, you know, business perspective, like Grace is like the magic. She's the creative spark. Bipolar opposite, it's like, yes, I'm deeply uncreative. <laughs> <In a way. laughs> I'm serious. Like, I, I know my skill set. Like, I'm, I think all about sort of the business strategy and um, the operational executional aspects of our business. Not to say that Grace doesn't know how to do that because she started this company on her own. So make no mistake that she's tough as nails and figures out how to get from point A to point B. But as far as like how quickly you want to scale, I really could see that like I could bring things to the table that based on my training as a consultant and kind of in business my whole life in a corporate context, I could really apply to the growing business. And then, you know, on a personal level, like Grace and I, again, we are like great friends and of like we, we never had any drama and like the friend chemistry is really important. And I kind of joke that of all the friends that we have in our, you know, closer and outer circle, it's like the first person I would go into business with is Grace because we just like don't have drama and it's rare <laughs> with girls. <laughs> I mean, I'd say it's, that a lot of people kind of warned us, they're like, okay, don't go into business with your friends. Like it could get really ugly, like, you know, proceed with caution, but I'm glad I didn't listen to them because, and I think it really is because there are no redundancies in what we do. Like we have very specific responsibilities in building the company together and we have great chemistry. And so it works. We've had a lot of founders on this show and the ones who are most successful, I think I'm thinking of... Jennifer Hyman, for example, of Rent the Runway, and a few others, the ones who are most successful do have this vision to be disruptive. What was it to you, Grace, that said the wedding industry is ready for a shakeup? I had been a bridesmaid six times, the first time in my early 20s and more recently in my mid 30s. And over the span of 15 years, I just realized that nothing had changed. It was still kind of a painful shopping experience. Dresses were still really expensive. It was very much a brick and mortar experience. And I realized that, you know, there's been innovation in every single part of our lives, including the bridal industry. So, you know, you have the Zolas of the world that were really changing the way women plan their weddings. But when it came to buying your bridesmaid's dress, it just felt so 
old and nothing had changed. And I was just like, there has to be a better way to do this. I mean, there were places in 2017, which was not that long ago, that would make you sign contracts promising not to return your dress after you purchase it because everything was made to order and it would take like six months to arrive. And I just, I couldn't understand why you couldn't buy a dress at a totally reasonable price point under $100 and have the flexibility to return or exchange it if you needed to. And so that's kind of where I started. Monica, can you talk to me logistically about how this works? And I know this because my son and daughter-in-law got married before the pandemic, and she outfitted her bridal party in your dresses in a beautiful shade of burgundy. And all of her attendance looked amazing in a variety of shapes and sizes, but the price was friendly. So how do you do that? How do you deliver on this promise? Sure. And that was really the fundamental question when Grace came up with the idea is, can you deliver a beautiful like Instagram-worthy, gorgeous dress that you can dance in all night for $99? It's not going to be cheap or ill-fitting or you know whatever you might consider at that price point. And the answer, luckily, we found is absolutely yes. And it's really in two ways. One, I think our approach of less is more from an inventory perspective, right, compared to our competitors that carry like infinite shades and customizations, right? So like all the different sizes, so much so that you have to actually be measured, right, by a tailor and a million different shades of blue. Like, you know, our next competitors have 65 different shades of colors, right? Whereas with us, we take a highly edited approach both to color and to styles. So we kind of pride ourselves on taking all of the work out of the equation. So the bride just sees the best of the best as far as the most beautiful colors for mixing and matching that are relevant for the season. And also for the sizes, right? Like I can go into Zara and buy a a size small t-shirt and it'll fit fine. I don't have to get fitted for that. And so we take the same thoughtful approach to our sizing, right? And so that from a business perspective lowers our inventory burden, right? Because our assortment is just a lot tighter. Not to mention the variety of styles. We just make sure that we cover all different body types. We're not going to carry seven different asymmetrical styles. We'll carry one and it's the best one and it's the most flattering in the fabric that makes the most sense, for example. Right. So we take all of that work out, which makes it a lot more financially feasible from an inventory standpoint. And then secondly, we are DTC. So we've cut out the middleman. Like fundamentally, that was the big game changer as far as our operating expenses. No one really wanted to see the middleman because it's not fun to have to like go to some brick and mortar atelier on the second floor and sit there and get measured. And it's kind of annoying, to be honest, as a bridesmaid. Right. So no one really enjoyed that experience anyways. And we've taken it out of equation so you could just try it on at home. Those are the two big things. Yeah, I think we've all learned that we don't have to try on all that much at all these days, right? Especially during the... Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. 
Emotional Badass is the weekly mental health and wellness podcast dedicated to empowering you with the emotional education so many of us crave. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, a psychotherapist with expertise in talk therapy, personal growth, and therapeutic healing. Join me every week on the Emotional Badass podcast as we delve into the heart of emotional wellness, tackling topics from stress management and coping strategies to the nuances of being highly sensitive. We navigate life's challenges, uncover the subtleties of gaslighting and manipulation, and confront narcissism head on. All the while, we learn to forge healthy boundaries that enrich both our personal and romantic relationships. With brand new content every Sunday and over 300 past episodes in our archive, there's something for everyone. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Pandemic. I am talking with Grace Lee and Monica Ashauer, co-founders of Birdie Gray. Grace, this has been a year. It has been a year and change. And I know you're planning for your own wedding. So talk to me a little bit about the wedding industry and the pandemic and maybe your own experience going through it. Yeah, that's a really good question. So when the pandemic first hit last March, it was like everything kind of came to a screeching halt. We had so many brides who were devastated about their weddings and just didn't know what was going to happen. You know, there was a question around, is this going to be a two week thing? Is this going to be a two month thing? As we all know, the pandemic just drew out all of last year. And so last year was really difficult, but also really interesting. I think as a company, as a business, we learned so much and we just kind of went into survival mode and we really wrote it out. And I think a part of that was really leaning into our content and really connecting with our brides. So the first thing we did was we turned to social channels. You know, this was an unprecedented thing to happen and brides were kind of like, I don't know what to do. And so we really leaned into, you know, our content to connect with our brides, get a pulse on what was happening with her and be as much of a resource as we could. And I think it resonated with a lot of our brides. And like you said earlier, you know, 50% of weddings last year were canceled or postponed. Most of them were postponed. And so this year, it's just kind of like a mad rush. Everyone is like rushing to plan their weddings. And it's really amazing to see the volume return. It's really amazing to see that love wasn't canceled. It was just on hold, I think, last year. And yeah, I mean, I'm planning my own wedding. So I got engaged during the pandemic in June. I didn't plan a single thing last year. I think I created my registry and that was the extent of it. But, you know, in January of this year, I hired a planner. I finally, you know, confirmed a venue and we're going to get married this November. And so it's been really exciting. I think I'm very active on Instagram and on social media, and I check in with our brides regularly. And it's just kind of like, we're going through this together. We're kind of learning together. And it's been a really Mm -hmm. interesting journey. I have noticed, and I have received a couple of wedding invitations recently. It's interesting to me, the couples seem to have gotten a little bit more pragmatic. The most recent one that I received, there was no registry. They just put a note on their wedding website that they bought a home and they would love gifts of cash because it'll help them make the home the place they want it to be. And I thought as I prep to move across a couple of states and I'm packing up these dishes that I got for my first wedding that I hardly ever use, 
I just think that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I would say the pandemic has definitely taken it to the next level. I think a lot of the old traditional rules are kind of thrown out. You know, a big one is paper goods and invitations, right? It's like in the past, it was always the proper thing to get paper and print and like mail it out and have them mail back individual RSVP cards. Whereas now it's totally fine to go digital. It's a lot more efficient and it saves a lot more money. It's sustainable. And we're seeing those types of trends all across the board. It's actually really fascinating from a business standpoint to see how this category kind of evolves through the pandemic is like what greater test of this industry than a pandemic that shuts out all events essentially, right? And the good news for us, especially in our investors, is like we've actually bounced back and been incredibly resilient, which shows me two things. It's like, well, while there are traditions that are changing and people are kind of altering the way that they get married, like two things have really reigned true. One, people are getting married. Women and men are like, I get it. I have to delay it. I might have to change it, but I'm having this wedding. People aren't just canceling their weddings outright. That's not negotiable. So that was a huge reassurance to us. And then secondly, bridal parties are still prevailing, right? Like we polled our customers and we have a pretty big following at this point. And the number of women in the bridal party has actually slightly increased to 5.7 women, right? And so while people might be doing mini-monies and, uh, you know, canceling their registries to instead donate to charity or, or all these other really interesting, cool things that reflect the evolving kind of younger generation, it looks like the squad and having your friends and your closest friends be part of the ceremony in a really intimate way, that is a tradition that is absolutely enduring. Goodness gracious, if that went away, we would be in trouble. So we're really happy that it's it's staying. Can we talk about being part of the squad for a second? Because... Boy, oh boy. I mean, aside from asking my bridesmaids to wear these pink confections, I really didn't ask anything else of them because it wasn't the thing when I got married, you know, almost 30 years ago. What has happened to the duties of being a bridesmaid during the pandemic? Is it that laundry list still that it was two years ago? It is. So before the pandemic, I think it was kind of being a bridesmaid was always a huge honor, but it's a lot of duties and expectations and it's very expensive. I think the average cost of being a bridesmaid all in with travel, gifts and hosting is about $1,400, which is pretty cost prohibitive if you think about you know, the average woman being a bridesmaid three times by the time she's 27 years old. It, it can be very expensive. And I think the pandemic, I think duties have kind of changed in that, you know, instead of hosting a all out bachelorette party, you know, a lot of things were happening online or a lot of it was just like supporting your bride or doing like virtual fittings together, especially early on in the pandemic. And so there's still a laundry list of duties, but I'd say that they've changed a little. A lot of it is now happening online. Although I will say now that the world is opening up, we're seeing people plan for their in-person events again. It's interesting. There's this whole concept of a post-wedding bachelorette. I think it's called a laterette, <laughs> where a lot of people are planning to do their bachelorette parties after the wedding. Yeah, I guess everybody's just willing to roll with it. I want to touch on two things as we wrap this up. The first is your incredible growth and the fact that you've been able to raise money so successfully. We have a lot of listeners who would love to be able to do that for the businesses that they're starting. Do you have suggestions, tips for things that you did correctly to enable this to happen? 
You know, I think one of the biggest things for us is that I had a, an entire year of operating history and revenue metrics to share when we were ready to go fundraising. So like for the first year, we were very scrappy and it was just like me and two coordinators and we were just kind of proving out the concept. Right before our first year, I approached Mon and I was like, Mon, I really need your help to help me scale and grow this business. And so we had a year of revenue data to share and that made things a lot easier. I think a lot of investors would probably be less inclined to take our call if they didn't see those revenue metrics. I don't know, Mon, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think also starting small, which is, I think, what most entrepreneurs naturally have to do, right? Like, I think Grace and I were really reluctant and almost awkward about essentially hitting up our friends for money, right? That's just not something that we, especially as like children of immigrants, like that's not something you do. Maybe this next generation is a lot more audacious about like going out and fundraising, but that concept was very uncomfortable for us, but we did it, right? And we started small with our immediate network and raised just a little bit of seed capital, enough to just get off the ground and again, get some of that data under our belt. And then I think we were in a much better position as Grace mentioned, to go out and actually talk to institutional investors. I think also, you know, we certainly practiced our story. We did a lot of preparation in terms of understanding how to present ourselves. And we leaned heavily on our friends who had either, you know, built their own businesses or were on the investing side to help kick the tires on how we were speaking about our business and the things that matter to investors. So, yeah, I mean, I think that preparation really, really matters. Monica, as you guys look to the future, the average price of a wedding dress is $1,600. Are you planning to tackle that segment of the market? At the moment, no, um, because we have so much room to grow, honestly, in just catering to the needs of the bridal party, which is kind of our sweet spot at the moment. I mean, never say never, but the wedding dress category is quite a different animal, right? Like it's in a way, it's almost the antithesis of what we're doing with group dressing, where we're coordinating kind of across five women. Like the bridal gown is, it has to be a one and done super special for her and her alone. And you have to have infinite inventory because it has to be super customizable. Whereas we're trying to optimize for a group of five, essentially. So I think there's also a lot more adjacent categories when it comes to like the bachelorette party and proposals, as far as like you asking your girls to be in the bridal party that are more fertile, obvious kind of ground for low hanging fruit, if that answers your question. Yeah, we'll never say never. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a CEO. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Put on your bridal hats one more time and talk to me about the best money-saving tips for brides right now and for bridesmaids. I know you talk to brides and bridesmaids all the time on social. What are the scrappiest, best, most surprising things in your arsenal? I'd say for brides, the number one way to save money on your wedding is to trim down on your guest list. So if you have a wedding for 200 people, try to get it down to 150 and you will save yourselves thousands of dollars. And I know it leads to a lot of uncomfortable questions like who makes the list and who doesn't, but it really, it's the best way to save a lot of money on your wedding. I'd also say, you know, I think invitations is a big one because I'm planning to do digital invitations. And I think my planner asked me to allot like $5,000 for printed invites. And I was like, no way. (laughs) Yeah, Those are probably some of the biggest things. I know like a live band versus a DJ is a big question that a lot of people ask and a live band is makes for a great party. But I know that especially in like California, a live band is $10,000 versus a DJ that's two or three. Monica from you? 
I've been in a lot of weddings where the bride, because she wants her whole wedding to be really elevated, has asked the bridesmaids to buy designer dresses. And I've always like deeply resented that because like the name brand thing doesn't really work in bridesmaids because you're only going to wear the dress once and no one cares and no one really looks at that. So just go with something that just makes sense. And then secondly, for bachelorette planning, right? I mean, this is like the opposite of a money saving tip, but the bar is really high these days, right? Like you can't just like have a brunch and call it a day. Like people are going to like Tulum, they're going to Iceland. I would say recruit the rest of the people that are invited to the bridesmaids party to help in the planning. I also think that that kind of prevents drama because a lot of people are in different budgets. And if you kind of go rogue and plan this elaborate vacation that other people aren't excited about or can't afford, I think that could be sort of uncomfortable. So I would kind of get feedback early on and make it more of like a fun girl's trip and celebration of the bride instead of like you're invited, show up and then pony up all this money, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. <laughs> For sure. You're, you're singing our song. Grace Lee, Monica Ashour. The company is Birdie Gray. You guys are a delight. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so Thank much you for me. having us, Jane. Of course. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Jean. So how many times have you been a bridesmaid? I haven't been that many. Um, Three. How about you? Okay. I was trying to remember, I think probably about three or four. Yeah. I was actually, as we were doing that interview, I was thinking about my daughter, who has nine best friends from camp. This is not even her school best friends. She's had these same nine young women since she was eight. Wow. And they are all still incredibly tight. And those nine women alone are two bridal parties, right? I mean, not that she's getting married anytime soon, but yeah, I was thinking about her. I was thinking about 27 dresses. I was thinking, I know this business, Birdie Gray is a business and it's doing well, but I just feel like they're doing a public service. Yeah. I mean, I've always paid more than $99 for all of the bridesmaids dresses that I've ever had. So that's a huge cost savings for so many women. I remember my friend Debbie and I was in her wedding and we went to the Vera Wang sample sale. And it was, I don't know if you remember the episode of Friends where they went to some bridal sample sale and got into a fight over dresses. But we went for her dress, which she didn't end up finding there. And then we were surprised to see that they had bridesmaids dresses. And so we just sat there and went through like boxes and racks of stuff and bought dresses for the entire bridal party at this sample sale. And you know, mixed up the pieces and the colors all went together. So it was fine. And it was incredibly inexpensive doing it that way. But, oh my God, it was also, I mean, we bought all this stuff and then we were trying to figure out, well, is it even going to work? We didn't know. There were a lot of alterations involved and no returns. Yeah. I instructed my bridesmaids to wear a red dress of any kind and I had lots of questions from people who were like, what shade of red, what style? And I was like, that's the whole point. <laughs> Surprise me. <laughs> and it ended up 
um, I'll, I'll show you the pictures, but it ended up being like kind of a nice little red rainbow of sorts with people in a darker maroon and people in like a more of a candy apple red. And it was great. You were clearly the perfect bride <laughs> from a bridesmaid's perspective, unlike me. Oh, I tried. Yeah. Well, I know we've got some wedding-related questions in the mailbag, so let's tackle. Yeah, we do. That's part of the reason why we wanted to do a wedding show. Our first question comes to us from a member of our private Harmony Facebook group. She writes, Hello. I'm getting married in a few months. A little bit about me. I'd have to say that I'm a frugal person, but at the same time, I'm not really low maintenance. I love buying nice things, but only for a discount. I rarely pay full price. I'm stuck between deciding if I want a wedding that's closer to my ideal wedding look or feel, or if I should settle and have my reception at a restaurant. The cost would be $9,000 cheaper at the restaurant, mostly because the venue would require renting for more hours and also because of the cost of draping the venue. Some of the cons of the restaurant space include there's no space to have a first dance or father-daughter dance. I'm super close to my dad, so I'd love to have that dance. There would also be no space for a photo booth or anything like that. It'll literally just be eating and that's it. Another con is having to move all the guests from the ceremony. I guess I'm trying to talk myself into splurging the $9,000, but I'm worried I may regret spending the money. By the way, we're in no debt and we can definitely afford it. I'm just not sure if I want to spend the money or not. What do you think? Thank you so much. Boy, oh boy, you sound a little like me. Actually, I gotta say, the frugal person, but not really low maintenance. I like to think I'm low maintenance, but I'm really not low maintenance. Anyway, I sort of went down the rabbit hole with your question and congratulations, by the way, on the upcoming wedding until we got to the father-daughter dance. And then I just thought, oh my God, you have to have that. You have to have that, right? When we think about things that are contributing to our happiness, we know that the research points to experiences. Why? Because experiences build memories and memories are the things that we can revisit over and over and over again. And even if you buy something that you love, that thing is going to get older over time. That pocketbook that you just had to have and got on sale and were jazzed about three years from now, you're going to look at it and you're going to think, well, I'm kind of tired of it. Time to recycle this, time to consign it and, and let's move on to the next. But that memory of your father daughter dance and your first dance, you have to have that. And I don't know that you can even put a price tag on it. I would push back on the photo booth. I, I kind of don't think that matters. I think you can put cameras on the tables, disposable cameras on the tables. People can take pictures. You can get the same effect by doing that. The moving guests from the ceremony to the reception, no big deal. The dance, though, I want you to have that. And so I want you to talk first to the restaurant and ask them what happens if you just clear a couple of tables. Ask them to get a couple of tables out of the way. You really, you know, unless you are a professional dancing with the stars kind of a person, you don't need a ton of room for a first dance or for a father-daughter dance. You can turn on some music. You can pump it through a speaker 
or even just pump it through your phone and you can have at it and people can take pictures and you can know that you did it forever. And if you decide that you want to spend the $9,000 and do it in the venue, I'm all for that as well. But congratulations. I don't know. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, congrats. I mean, I think reading between the lines, she says that they have the money, that they can afford it. And it's really just a question of want. And she's telling us that she wants the father-daughter dance. So if you are going to feel like you missed out by not doing it, then I think you have to do it. Yeah. And I got to say, so my first wedding, I compromised with my first husband who really didn't want a hora, which is a, for those of you who are listening, it's a Jewish tradition. It's a circle dance. They lift people up on chairs. He really didn't want it. And I really did want it. And I just gave in. And I still think about it, actually. I mean, you know, I'm divorced. We're friends. It's 30 years ago. But I think when there's something that's sort of tugging on you, this is one of those, this is why we work situations. This is one of those situations where it's really not about the number. It's really about the fact that you have the resources. You have to decide how you're going to use your resources. You're not telling me, oh, because we're going to spend this extra money on the venue, we are not going to be able to go on the trip that we want to take, or we are not going to be able to make our retirement contributions. You're really just kind of judging yourself and what you want. And I believe that there are plenty of times where we all work hard enough that we should allow ourselves to have the things that we want, not need, want with the money that we have. You know, we always advise people that when there is an experience that you find valuable, that you're going to remember and treasure those experiences far more than you do things. And Maybe she is feeling like there's so many costs associated with the wedding. How can I justify this one additional cost? But this Mm -hmm. is an experience. This is a memory. Yeah. Yeah. I think Catherine and I both vote daddy-daughter dance. Absolutely. Thanks, Jean. Mm -hmm. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hello, I have a question about what I should spend on gifts for my 26-year-old son's wedding. It's a modest wedding, total costs around $25,000. As parents of the groom, we're putting in around six dollars to $7,000. i am paying for a beautiful hotel room for them for the night of the wedding, but I'm not paying for the honeymoon. And by the way, I have been subsidizing his mortgage payments for four years on the condo that he lives in that we bought jointly. I'm 64, I have a high-paying job, and I'm trying to get ready for retirement. I've been the breadwinner for our family while my husband has been the stay-at-home parent. My question is, should I still buy them a generous bridal shower and wedding gift? We've had some big expenses recently with taxes, a new car, our first big mom and dad only vacation, and lately it feels like all I do is write checks. I love them both and don't want to be cheap, but I'm curious about the social and money etiquette here. What is your advice? Thank you. I'm wondering if I was raised in a different part of the country or with different traditions, I don't think you have to give them a gift at all. 
I mean, it's one thing, the bridal shower, I actually think if you're going and you're a guest rather than throwing the bridal shower, then you should buy something off the registry and maybe you you do that with your other children if you have other children. Maybe there's some sort of a family gift. But you're giving them a wedding gift. You're putting in six or seven thousand dollars to the wedding. That to me is an enormous gift and the hotel room. I don't think you have to buy a gift. Catherine, am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong, because I do know that different families and different cultures have different traditions about what the families do. And I'm thinking back to my big fat Greek wedding and the wonderful father, Gus, got up to the microphone and he said, this is what we do. The parents, we buy a gift. And I actually think that's pretty much the exact quote from the movie because I've watched it so many times. And then they gave him a house which is not to say that you should buy your kids a house. It's just to say that there are different traditions. And besides, you already did buy them a house. So with the mortgage payments, I think you're off the hook. What do you think? You're totally off the hook. But I also, as a Southern woman, understand the desire to not show up to a shower empty-handed. So I think that this is actually the perfect opportunity to give some sort of family keepsake or heirloom, like a nice quilt or a photo, you know, maybe have some photos duplicated of your ancestors and have them nicely framed. This is a great time to give something from the heart that doesn't cost money. I like your answer so much better than mine. Let's just go with (laughs) Catherine's answer. (laughs) No, I'm thinking about it because I actually, for my bridal shower, for my first wedding, I got from my Aunt Mary, she gave me two serving pieces of, I think it's a salad set. It's a small salad set from her own collection. And I love them. I love them. They were, you know, everything else from that shower has pretty much run its course. But those silver pieces, I treasure. Yeah, great point, Jean. I treasure a lot of the little things that I got like that as well. Some silver, a little cross stitch hanging that I love. So that kind of stuff really means a lot. Our last question comes to us from Daniela. She writes, Dear Jean and Catherine, thank you for all the great information you share every week. I love listening to the podcast and I've learned so much from it. I wanted to get your thoughts on how much we should invest in a vacation investment property. A little about me. My husband and I are taking over the family farm. We've remodeled the guest house on the property and we are extremely lucky to not have any mortgage payments. We also both have full-time jobs. I make $126,000 a year and my husband makes around $50,000 a year. All the revenue from the farm pretty much just goes into covering the expenses to keep it running, so we don't count that as income. All our cars are paid off and we don't have any credit card debt. I'm 35 years old and I contribute 12% to my 401k and Roth accounts and get an employer match of 6%. We've been saving to buy a second home in the mountains because we both love skiing and hiking, and the area where we're targeting has great potential to make additional revenue as a short-term rental. We have 60000 in cash for the down payment and an extra 35000 as an emergency fund. Our initial budget was 450000 but we keep getting outbid, and the houses that we like are going anywhere from 600000 to 800000 since this is a very sought-after area. My question is, do you think it is wise to increase our budget to 600000 or even 800000 
I know we could afford it, but we also like traveling and would like to still save money for other investments. We know we could make some money back from the short-term rentals when we are not using it, but I prefer to look at that as a bonus and not as a given. Or should we keep looking to see if something comes up in a lower price range? I should add, we've been looking for two years now, waiting for prices to come down and the market to turn around, and it hasn't happened yet. Thank you in advance for the great advice. I have to tell you that I was shocked, Daniela, when we got to the part where you just said you were 35 years old. I mean, you're doing incredibly well. Clearly, you and your husband have your head together. And I think that the fact that you don't have any mortgage on the first house gives you the leeway to invest a little bit more money here. I also just want to point out that you are in a really, really tight housing market. I mean, this is a seller's market if there has ever been a seller's market. And the low interest rates that we're experiencing right now are likely only to rise in the future. So I do think if you think that this is a place that you're going to want to have for a good long time, this is not a bad time to get in. I think you can spend a little bit more, particularly since you know that you can afford it. But the thing that I want you to do just to make yourself feel better about increasing your budget is to look at the rental history on similar properties. Go through a pretty decent analysis of what those properties look like, how much you know you can count on, how much of the time you think you're going to want to rent it out, whether or not you're going to need to pay for a maintenance company to help you do the rentals and what that's going to cost you. And the other thing to take a look at is that the down payment requirements for second homes may be a little bit higher than you're anticipating. Some places really do want to see 20% on a second home, and that's going to get you closer to $120,000. So you may need to amp up your savings in order to get yourself there. But I think having that data, having that information is going to make you feel a lot better about this decision. And as far as your other investments are concerned, you've got the farm, you've got your already paid off home, and you've got a lot of money pouring into retirement. I think you're doing okay. And I just go for it. I feel like this is a conversation that I I recently had with my close friend, Diane, who those of you who listen to the podcast know is my running partner. And she recently bought a beach house that she knew that she wanted to rent out for a good portion of the summer. And we went through a similar analysis to this to figure out that, yes, it was, in fact, doable. But seeing the numbers really helped her feel more comfortable. And I think that they'll help you feel more comfortable as well. Yeah, I mean, she's done an amazing job saving for 35. That's incredible. But I also understand her desire to get a deal. And the real estate market is crazy right now. So I think it's just a balance of feeling good about where you are, but also sticking to your guns and saving the money that you want to save when you do make the purchase. Exactly. Exactly. And there's something to be said for living, right? I mean, houses are 
generally fungible assets. If you are looking to buy in an area where sales have been going great guns for two years, that's not the hot housing market. The housing market hasn't been frothy for that long. It's been frothy for the last six months, maybe a year once we got into the pandemic. And so if this area is so desirable and you decide two years, three years, five years down the road that really you're not using it as much as you thought, you want to unload it, you should probably be able to get your money out of it. And even if you don't make money, you can chalk that up to the fact that you got some enjoyment out of the place as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you. And thanks for writing, everybody. In today's Thrive, let's talk about teaching your kids about money. Money may seem like a challenging and daunting topic to discuss with children, but it is never too early to start teaching your kids about personal finance and help them begin healthy saving and spending habits. At Her Money, we break down some of the best strategies for diving into all things money with your little and not so little ones. Our rule of thumb is that if your child is still learning about money and you've got information to impart, don't hold back. When it comes to teaching young children about saving, spending, and the value of a dollar, you can start with toys. You can explain to them that they need to save in order to purchase a toy, that hard work is necessary in order to save for the toy, and that patience plays an important part. Best of all, you can teach these things in everyday life rather than a formal setting. These values can be shared while shopping for groceries, for example, or when strolling the mall, if that's something that you're doing these days. And opportunities will likely present themselves organically. The day you go to the store and your child starts whining for a toy or candy, that's the day you start teaching them about money. When your kiddo is a little older, you can go bigger. You can head to the bank where they can open a savings account and learn about how much things cost. Ideally, by middle school, children should be able to set and achieve a few financial goals each year with a guiding hand from their parents. We know that once kids see their accounts growing, they feel more confident about their ability to accumulate money and they become motivated to get more. This translates into having more self-esteem in their own ability to grow their savings. Lastly, don't discount the behavior you're modeling every single day. You want your children to have a positive relationship with money. And yes, a big part of that is how you explain to them. But an even bigger part is what they see you doing with money. When they see you excited about saving, meeting goals, and having a stress-free attitude about your finances, chances are they'll learn to model the same behavior. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Grace and Monica for such a fun show all about weddings. My wedding is now years in the past, but I still love talking about them and learning about the latest trends. If you have a celebration in your future, I hope it is a wonderful one. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.
keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts.